Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello and welcome to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center right here in Tempe, Arizona, where we help build businesses and connect you with the right people. And I am here today with my friend David Cook, CEO of the Cook Group LLC, and we are looking forward to a conversation and introducing David's work to you, our listeners. And it's all about listening today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. It's so good to be on the show. Likewise, we were just sharing with Daryl that I got to be on your podcast, we think February, March, just a handful of months ago, and love that experience. And you're 20 episodes in. I am 20 episodes in. Pales in comparison to your greatness, but this is, <laughs> you got to start somewhere, I, I right? don't know. I don't know about that. Why we, we are going to have to look to see. I think Daryl rounded up to maybe 200 or so that I've already hosted in six years. You've been at this since January. Right. So, hey, you know, talk well, to me in six years. You got to start somewhere. That's right. You know. Talk, if, if you would please, about the podcast. Can we start there since that's um, our most recent opportunity to connect? And then I want to get, you know, back into just everything that you've done professionally. But that podcast is a special project for you. And it, it just it's really something that I know you are very passionate about when it comes to being in relationship with people and helping them with some specific challenges. Well, great. Thank you. It is definitely a passion project. The show is called Stop Telling and Start Listening. And what we really focus on is taking a look at how we can shift our listening behaviors. And the reason we want need to shift our listening behaviors more than anything else, especially nowadays, is there's a lot of people standing on corners yelling and screaming at each other. There are a lot of people, we talk about mental health issues and those kind of things. There are a lot of people are feeling disconnected, unheard, disrespected, lost, whatever. And really, my belief is, is that we can solve a lot of those problems, you know, kind of comically. We can solve the world's problems if we learn to listen better. But it really is true is that I think that we have a great opportunity to bring people closer together if we learn to meet people where they are for who they are and listen to them share their stories, their journey, their beliefs, why they believe what they believe, how it influences their life's decisions. And once we have that context, we have a better opportunity to communicate with them on the level that, you know, meet them where they are and the level that they're at, as opposed to trying to make people meet me on my terms, meet other people on their terms. So great. And has everything to do with your company and the work that you do for organizations and businesses. So tell us about the, the Cook Group and what you're doing. Well, it's funny. The Cook Group has evolved as, you know, typical entrepreneur, right? But uh, the Cook Group evolved as a sales coaching business 20 years ago. Originally. Yeah. And uh, my story is, is and in the, in the hate's a hard word, but people always saw me as a sales guy. And I took that as uh, not a compliment. I took that as an insult because I think salespeople are kind of schmarmy. I'm a relationship expert. I like to believe that my success in sales and my successes in business development and coaching was creating an opportunity for people to share for me what they were looking for. And me, whether it was in a role as a salesperson or as a, as a manager in a company, helping them find what they're looking for, understand what it is that they need, why they need it, why it's important to them, what's getting in the way of their success. And if I can help them overcome those obstacles, then I have a better relationship with them. They learn to trust me. We then can accomplish more things together. And that's really how I started. You know, my business was originally 
it was sales coaching because a lot of companies would hire salespeople and they would hire salespeople that behaved like bad salespeople, but because they had that stereotype in their mind, you know, a personable, talkative, kind of arrogant kind of guy. So I need to have him and they hire that individual. And then that individual would be exactly what they hired. And they said, but they're not yeah. doing anything. Of course, they're not doing anything because you didn't hire a really, you didn't hire a salesperson. You hired a salesperson that you hated, not a salesperson that is truly good at what they do. And that's why I started teaching people that if you learn to listen and learn to build relationships not built on trust and integrity, then what you can do is you can accomplish great things. Hmm. That's the whole reason I even opened Phoenix Business Radio. Really? Giving people an opportunity to share their story mm -hmm. and really listen to what it is that they have going on in their lives and how they're serving the world. Yes, that was it's the impetus for this this whole gig. There you go. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time between Arizona and Detroit, and you have clients all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you work with large organizations to— well, Yeah, I would say the organizations that I work with now are much bigger than they used to be. Um, I, I, you know, when I first started out as an entrepreneur, any client is a good client, and then you find out <laughs> that not all business is good business. And I became a little bit more particular, but most of my clients right now run in the neighborhood of 75 employees or more. And I spent a lot of time in Detroit because I do have one client in Detroit that I find that I am much more effective when I'm in the office walking around and seeing people. The challenge is now I'm in Detroit two weeks at a, a trip because they're only in the office two days a week. So for me to get a week's worth of work in, traditional week's worth of work, I need to be there for two weeks to get four days of office time. So that's how that works. Yeah. But I'm from Detroit, so going there every six weeks isn't a bad thing. Right. Tell us a little bit about the listening platform. I'm, I'm looking for the name. You've got this. Oh, selfless listening? Yeah. Tell us about that. You developed that? That's <laughs> yes. a program? Selfless Actually, it's, uh, I'll tell you a little story about selfless listening yeah. really quick because it's kind of funny. Um, I would say it was about, it was, you know, maybe 15 years ago that far back. I was at a, I was in an event where there were three, three sales coaches were giving a presentation. I was one of three. I looked at the two other guys, one of them I knew really well, and I always viewed him as a competitor and probably had a less than healthy attitude towards him. And it turned out he's become a great friend and he surprised me with a lot of really cool things that he's done in my life. And I call him, I, I call him, I respect him for who he is and what he does. But at the time I looked down upon him that he wasn't as good as me. So I'm in this room with these two guys. And I'm going, gosh, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. True story. And it's my turn to get up and I grab this marker and I go up, grab the whiteboard. And I say, you know, the problem with sales is, is that everybody says the, you know, sales, salespeople's greatest weakness is they don't listen. It's not that we don't listen is that we haven't been taught how to listen well. And I grabbed this marker and I said, what we need to do is we need to learn to be, um, be selfless, selfless in our listening. And selfless being is, is it's just that, is that the person that I'm speaking to is the most important person in the room. So selfless means that I have to filter, I have to clean out my filters, my beliefs, my values, my judgment, all that stuff, and really create a safe space for the person to communicate with me who they are, what they are, where they're going, kind of what I said earlier. And listening is different than telling, right? So we're going to listen. We're not going to tell. The opposite of selfless listening is selfish telling. And I said, so what it is, is it's a platform where the more you engage somebody in a conversation where they're sharing, where you're learning, and there's about four layers of information. It's listening to learn, learning to understand, mm -hmm. understanding to know, knowing to solve. And this was, I winged this. And at the end of that 
five-minute presentation, this salesperson that I um, have become friends with now said, that's brilliant. And I looked at it and I go, you know, actually it is. <laughs> and it's now a program. <laughs> it is now a program. And I've developed it since. And really, you know, when you think about listening to learn is it's, it's high level. So listening and learn is you be, and I use the word is it's awareness. You you become aware of there's something to talk about, and so somebody says something and you know that we're out we're out in listening mode and they say something. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. And then the next stage is listening to learn, and listening to learn provides context as they're telling you more. Now I'm getting a better sense of what they were saying, what that meant by it, whatever it is, and I can explore and I can get some depth and perspective and all that stuff. So I call that the context phase. Usually the problem is, is that if I know what an opportunity is and I have some contact, most salespeople say, well, let me tell you about my solution. The truth of the matter is, is that they really don't have enough knowledge to really solve the problem, but they have enough information to think they understand the problem. That's why it's listening to learn, learning to understand. The next level of the conversation is, is understanding to know. You know exactly how they feel about the situation. You know exactly what's getting in the way. You know where they're struggling. And now what you start to see is why they you know, talked about something as a challenge, issue, problem, or opportunity. Because now you've dealt, you've gone deeper, and they're sharing information with you that they don't normally have time to share with people or they don't have trust to share it with people. So I say when you get to that point where somebody's talking about stuff that they normally don't talk about people, they're now starting to trust you at a level where now you know what's going on. You don't assume, you can't jump, you can't draw conclusions because they've told you their truth. And then once you have the knowledge, now you know to solve. So when they say to me, they say to you in that situation, say, hey, Dave, what do you think? They're asking me to be part of their solution. And now I can give them an answer and I can feed it back and tie it to their story. Because otherwise, if I'm selfish telling, I'm going to fit it into my brochure or my context of, you know, if it's relational, I say, yeah, you know, when I was in the situation, this is what I did. But if I'm making it about me, I'm not making it about them. I'm being selfish. So the idea being is, is that I get it to a point where I can say, here's the story I heard. Here's the situation as you presented to me. Here's what I think your opportunities are. And then we can go from there. Hmm. I'm, I'm now scraping through our, our sales process, right? We call it a show concept meeting. I'm like, wow. I thought I was a good listener until just now. <laughs> That's well, you, fantastic. Well, you are a good listener. I've had I've had just enough conversations <laughs> with you that I know you are. But it it it, it I think the uh, when I was per, first introducing this to somebody and they said, "What's the opposite of selfless listening?" and I couldn't answer the question. They said, "Well, let's just think about it. Selfless. So if the opposite of selfless is selfish, mm -hmm. so selfish means I've spun it around. And it's now about me. What can I get out of you? What can I get from you? What can I, you know, how can I accomplish what I came here to accomplish? And then telling is, let me give you the answer. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we're in coaching and we're solving problems, it's like, yeah, I have a few ideas, but what do you think you need to do? And why do you think that's important? You basically revisit the learning conversation because we intuitively know, well, I shouldn't say no is the right word, but we intuitively have a sense of what to do next. What we don't intuitively have is enough confidence to believe in it, or we have some fear, doubt, and concern that that's the right one. So to have a conversation with somebody where you're learning, you're feeding things back, they start to say, yeah, and the, more you, the more we're talking, the more I realize this is where I need to go. And it was something I already, they already believed. I just helped them stay on the path of their, of their, and trust their truth. I think what happens for me, uh, and I work on being a good listener, it's part of why I open the studio and do the work that I do outside of here, 
when it comes to the sales conversation, I do take off the hat of, I mean, I listen, but then I take it off at some point and I, and I, I go for the get. <laughs> and, and what you're helping me understand is, is that I, if I know that I have something great to offer, I can still stay in that place of listening and offer it with confidence mm-hmm. and have them be more engaged in that as a conversation instead of, all right, well, here's my, here's what I've heard you say, come, come with my agenda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, I'm hearing myself throw some of the things out that they said because it doesn't fit the brochure, as you said, mm-hmm. and then laying it on them like, okay, well, here's what we have to offer. I, that's really a fantastic shift for me. Well, the the challenge is I could talk about the get is that, you know I I completely understand you know every we we talk about this a lot you know when we're coaching is you know every meeting has to have an intention they have to have an objective so mm-hmm. if I'm if we're in a sales call the objective is is to understand find out what you know what's going on in somebody's business and understand how you can help them. Mm-hmm. For me, that's where I shift, though. How I can help them, this is what and I was a, started out as a sales guy in New York City, had zero knowledge of the industry I was selling in. But I would meet with people, and I'd sit down with them, and they'd, you know, they go, oh, that's right, I, you know, I'm supposed, you know, we're here. You know, I scheduled a 1 o'clock meeting with you. Okay, fine. So, well, if you don't want to meet, we don't have to. Well, no, but I got other things going. Okay, what are they? And I would completely pivot away from it, from my agenda, because they weren't going to listen anyway. But by having the conversation that we have and they talk about their business, I'm learning about their business because they're telling me about the struggles and the challenges. So they're and now they're inadvertently, unintentionally, you know, showing me where their bodies are buried, mm-hmm. which they wouldn't nor- normally volunteer out of the gate, especially if I'm trying to push for advocate for an outcome. So I'm learning about the business. I'm learning about their challenges and the work that they're in and how they work and how they think and how they speak. And as we go through that process, if I can find a way for them to think through the thing that's actually preventing us from having a conversation about my objective, they found value in the meeting. If they found value in the meeting, the translation is Dave brings value to my conversations. Mm -hmm. And if they find that Dave brings value, eventually say, oh, by the way, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And so, well, you know, they say, oh, interesting. And now they're seeing how I might be able to, they might be able to talk to me about what I do. Um, but what I do is solve problems, you know, so, but sometimes it's product-based. Sometimes it was, you know, service-based. It doesn't really matter. But that was, that was the leap is that if they trust me, which is the struggle salespeople have, because we don't trust salespeople. The reason we don't trust them is because they're out for themselves. They want to get the outcome. How do I get paid? Mm-hmm. How do I close a deal? Don't try to close a deal and you'll probably close more, mm-hmm. which drives sales trainers crazy when I say that because, oh, no, you have to, not for me. It's about the relationship. I want people to sit when they see sitting with Dave Cook, that meeting had value. I can't determine what that value is, but when they walk away, I'm so glad I met Dave Cook. And Dave Cook always walks away. You and I had, you know, breakfast a couple months ago. It was the first time we had a face-to-face. I got something out of it. It was the connection of the conversation. We didn't have an agenda except to get to know each other and see what's going on. To me, that's what life is all about. I don't need to bring my satchel. I don't need to bring my tools and my toys. What I need to do is I need to bring me and be the best resource I can for them. In the end, I will have a relationship with them, which is what I want. Is it going to be a business relationship, a personal relationship, a professional resource relationship? I don't know. But by taking the pressure off, I having to try to figure out a way to close a deal with you. Now I'm free to investigate the entire space of what's what's in it for us. Mm-hmm. Was there a time that you 
don't think you were a good listener? <laughs> yeah, right is now. Fair, is that a fair question? <laughs> right now. Well, that's because I'm interviewing you. <laughs> I know, but there, I, I, I have this, I have this personal struggle all the time. <laughs> to want to ask questions coming this way? Yeah. Well, it's 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 natural. I met, you know, I met with this um, this one um, cohort of mine in Detroit, and and she wanted me to meet her business partner. I think also boyfriend, but she's never revealed that they're in a relationship. But I'm pretty sure they are. <laughs> So we're having this conversation and we're talking and talking and talking. And I get in the car and I drive away and I'm going, I think that I just owned that whole conversation. I feel like I talked 90 out of the 120 minutes. And I said to her, you know, the next day when we talked, you know, she said, oh, yeah, he loved you. He thought you were so cool and blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, I'm sorry I talked so much. You kidding? I thought it was the greatest conversation. So it's just a matter of paying close attention. They wanted to hear from me and they were interviewing me and they were feeding on it. And in the end, it worked out. But there was a time where I'm going, yeah, I'm babbling Dave. And, you know, so I do worry about it. But that's, I think that's it is, is that, um, you know, am I, am I listening? I don't know how you measure it. but And an interview is clearly different. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on the interview, but most interviews, you know, we've invited you here to share your story and, and learn from you. That's different than many other settings. I'm thinking of a networking event I went to recently, and I'm, I think what you and I have talked about, I'm not a big, I, I'm not comfortable networking, which is why I open Business Radio, so people come here, and then I can just be in listening. Mm-hmm. But in networking, when it's, you know, maybe two minutes or people competing for attention and, and the airtime and here's my card and here's what I do, the pounce kind of thing, um, I always kind of walk away from those, like having to shed a little bit of my skin mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're not. I don't think they're designed to give people an opportunity to really deeply listen unless whoever's facilitating it or hosting it kind of sets the tone a little bit mm-hmm. differently. Right. And the, well, the challenge with networking events is, um, you know, if we using the law of economics as an example, but the law of economics is, is that market's always clear. You know, there's an equal number of buyers and equal number of sellers. In a networking event, there are no buyers. <laughs> but we all believe that there's a buyer there. Interesting. Nobody's there buying. Everybody's there selling. Mm-hmm. So then how do we create a shift there? So for me, networking, I haven't gone to a networking event in years, but I would, when I first moved to Phoenix, I went to every networking event I could go to several times over until I finally found the ones I liked and the ones I didn't like. But I used to play the game of, um, sometimes I wouldn't even tell people what I do. So, yeah, you know, what do you do? And the guy would, you know, individual would go on and on and on about their business. And, oh, my gosh, you know, and he'd give me this business card and I'd put it in my left pocket. And then somebody else would have this great conversation I put it in my right pocket. And they said, what do you do with the people in the left pocket? I says, I spam the spoop out of them because that's all they want anyway. <laughs> and the people in the right-hand pocket were people that I wanted to follow up with and actually talk to them longer because they were interesting. And there was an exchange of information, not one way, but actually a flow back and forth. And so, you know, I just, I treated networking events just like treated like sales calls is tell me what you want me to know. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you do? Not as important as, you know, why are you here? What's important? Who are you looking for? You know, what's a win for you in this event? And all those kind of things. Because for me, that was what I was looking for was information. And I got a couple of times, I will just tell you a funny story, but I had a couple of situations where my friends that I were more familiar with would start to join a conversation I have with somebody. And then finally the person would look at, so would somebody tell me what he does? <laughs> oh, that's great. And I said, well, actually, I do exactly what you've been experiencing. I'm listening to you tell me about your business. And then all my friends would go, yep, that's what Dave does. 
It's driving you crazy, isn't it? Yeah, man, he won't tell me what he's doing. <laughs> I'm not going to. It's not what I'm here for. I'm here to meet people and see what they're all about. Yeah. Wow. There has to be um, a great level of confidence that comes with that. And I, I've spent enough time with you to know that that, that is evident and there. And it's, it's also balanced with great humility, too, which is really neat. Because you just, you hum right here. <laughs> I'm glad you see that. But. <laughs> that, that I, I'm pretty confident other people do, but I just, this here's Dave. The rest of us are here. <laughs> I love it. Let's talk a little bit about your own journey, uh, both as a professional. And I also, if you're okay with it, we'll talk a little bit about your personal journey as a father as well. Okay. Because you and I have some, that's what we spent the bulk of our conversation when I was on your show talking about. Um, for me, uh, you know parenthood and mm-hmm. and uh, a marriage and and suicide and some of that heavy stuff. Professionally, though, you mentioned that you were in sales for a great portion of your career. Did you, eighth grade, you knew, I'm going into sales? Well, my dad was in sales. Oh, he was. My so it did was, come naturally. My dad was a pharmaceutical rep. My second grade teacher told my parents that I'm going to be a salesperson. And I always wanted to be like my dad. I used to, you know, ride my bike because he would like, you know, get in the car, a company car and drive off to his territory. And I'd get on my bike and I'd, you know, name a city that I'm going to go to. You know, where are you going? I'm going to Mount Clemens, which is a town in, outside of Detroit. And my mom would laugh and say, I'm going to Detroit, you know, or going to Mount Clemens. Okay, see you later. And I'd ride by. So, I, yeah, I was in my mind I was going to be a salesperson. You know, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Was your, uh, your dad's a good listener? No, he's a terrible listener. Which is probably where I, because I was determined that I, that was one of the things is that I wanted to be, I wanted to create an environment for people to be heard. Mm -hmm. Because I knew I wasn't as a kid. That was a gigantic frustration for me. Mm -hmm. So um, I know that that's, that's the shift. And, you know, like I said, I don't really know when it happened, but I do remember when I was working in New York that I just became, that I just realized that not knowing the business and the industry at all. I was the first person hired for a quote unquote sales acumen and no industry knowledge. And I just settled into some truisms. You know, New York City is a very competitive market. I love being in New York. I love the pace. I love the energy. I love the integrity because um, a lot of things were, and this was a long time ago now too, 40 years ago, but a lot of things were done on handshakes. Mm -hmm. But if you were a, a person of your word, you had business. If you were a person who wasn't of your word, you had people throwing you out. Um, if you made a mistake, you own it and don't repeat it. And so I just learned how the market works. And it just was, I, I started studying. And I guess in the process, I became a listener as I studied. Yeah. Well, you'd have to, right? <laughs> especially being thrown into an industry that you're not familiar with. Yeah. You've got to listen. Yeah. And talk to us about, or talk to me, about your journey um, as a parent and how that feeds into 100 Pedal. I'm forgetting. Well, 100 Pedals was uh, it was a nonprofit that I started, gosh, 10 years ago. I'm no longer involved with it. I ran it. I founded it and ran it for about eight years. And what it was was it was a nonprofit um, to help moms and dads who were dealing with substance abuse issues in the family. And the reason that I founded it was uh, my, uh, I have three kids, my youngest child, my younger son, been battling a heroin addiction on and off for, I don't know, probably 15, 18 years, somewhere in that range. And what I learned through that whole process, and it was hard. I mean, when we first find out that our kids are struggling, mm-hmm. we dive in as parents and we want to fix it. I mean, that's who we are. Moms and dads, we fix it. They, you know, they, they, they cut themselves, you bandage it up and you make them feel better. And it's the same thing with a, within a substance abuse issue. They have a substance abuse issue. What do I need to do to fix it? 
And I found out very early on is that there's not enough love in the world to get my son sober until my son was ready. Hmm. Just not enough love. But I did what every mom and dad does is that I was, I was all in rescue my son from the crisis of his addiction to the extent that it caused me um, mental, physical, financial, emotional pain. You know, I gained weight, my business suffered, I didn't socialize, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt as a failure as a dad every time my son relapsed or got arrested or whatever. And then um, the reason the name of the business was called, the nonprofit was called 100 Puddles is one day I had a a pivotal moment in my life. And I kept, you know, when my son was missing out on the street somewhere, I would wake up in the middle of the night in a panic and I'd go outside and I'd say a prayer. No, actually, I'd say two prayers. The first prayer was, um, please bring my son home safely. And then the second one was, please help me get through this because mm. I was just so broken. And one night, I, you know, the inner voice of me goes, dude, you keep saying the same prayer over again. What are you doing differently? Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about it and said, okay, I need to take control of my life because my son's addiction was in control of my life. So I rode my bike for an hour a day for 100 days in a row. And the meta, the meditational aspect of the bike rides provided me strength, confidence, clarity that I can do this. I can do something. And the something that I can do is I can love my son, but I can't fix my son. And that was the decision that I made at the end of that bike ride. I said to, my, I said to him, I go, you know, I came to the realization that I can't be involved with your recovery. And I wanted to slap him in the face as his response because he goes, that's okay, that, because now I need to manage it. I think you sucker. Oh, my goodness. It's like, but. <laughs> you've known all along. <laughs> yeah, you've known. Well, but they do. Of they course. do. They of do course. know. That's the thing that most parents, it's like you tell them that they need to get clean. How many kids that are they using. They already know that. They already know that. Right? Yeah. If it was that easy, dad. Yeah. I'd already do it. Yeah. So what I made it what uh, the commitment that I made to myself from that point forward though is meet my son where he is for who he is. Sounds like my sales thing. And so then when I was, I was coaching parents, the more I was coaching moms and dads to this and sharing my story with them, going, huh, I feel like I'm doing this all over again. I'm teaching mom and dads how to solve the Dave way. <laughs> and then, so that's really what I started realizing is is that this listening thing isn't just for business. It isn't just for me. What it is, it's a game changer for people who are wherever they are. You know, if you're interfacing with somebody and they're struggling, they're in pain, they're lost, whether their career's in the crapper or their marriage is, you know, a mess or their kids are on drugs or whatever, is the best thing you can do is to meet somebody where they are in their, in their pain mm-hmm. and sit with them and understand what's going on. Because once you do that, now you understand what they're going through and now you can see what level of commitment or resource or opportunity you can provide for them to help them navigate their way through it. What is the greatest challenge in doing that? (laughs) The greatest challenge? That's a great question. That's probably the first time anybody's ever asked me that. Um, Well, the greatest challenge is is recognizing that sitting with them Mm -hmm. is enough. They don't need an answer. In fact, if you try to give them an answer, it might not be what they need. You know, I think one of the things that I heard in my church years ago was um, a couple in my in our church um, lost a like a two or three year old child. You know, they put them in bed for a nap, and they never woke up, and it was devastating. And the counselor, you know, the minister of counseling, whatever, in our church says the best thing you can the best thing you can do is we say. And I sat with them for afternoon after afternoon after afternoon. 
I said, I'm thinking like, really, why? She goes, the best thing you can do is to sit with them and just let them know you care. You can't fix it. Can't bring the child back to life. You're really not going to help them like short circuit their pain. What they need to know is that they're not alone. And so just sitting with them is enough. I don't need to give them advice, guidance, words of motivation or inspiration. What I need to do is I need to give them my unconditional love in the moment by just sitting with them. And so I think the biggest challenge is just that is to recognize I don't have to have an answer. All I have to do is have a presence. Especially as a fixer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when you take this into the business settings and you're coaching and working with teams and individuals around listening, are they saying that this, this greatest challenge for them is the same thing, like really just holding space for people or is it is it different? It's different because, you know, um, and that's been my, I would say that's my biggest challenge as a coach, yes. as, a, as a consultant, is for me, it's become so second nature that, it, in fact, I had one, I have a really good relationship with one of the people in the office and they said, Dave, you make this sound so easy. And it's not. And I said, you're right. It's not. I said, it's simpler than you think it is, but it's not easy. And I think the the key to the whole thing is, is that you, the idea is, is that we, especially in work, we come into work and we want to do our job. But the thing is, is that we have stories that we tell about other people. And it's those stories that prevent us from um, actually connecting. Because I, if I make the assumption that, Karen, I'm going to sit down with you and talk to you about something that we had that, you know, maybe was a tension and, you know, maybe we had a spat in a meeting. And my advice is, hey, clear it up. Say, hey, sorry, we got sideways, blah, blah, blah. Or say, let's just say you said something to me that was very disrespectful in the meeting. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you could have confronted her in the meeting. Yeah, I could have yelled at you. But then what we have is we have more tension. Everybody's going, oh, my gosh, Dave and Karen are now fighting those turkeys, you know. Mm -hmm. So the best thing that I can do is step aside and, you know, have a one-on-one with you and say, hey, Karen, you know, when you said this to me, I need to let you know this is what I felt. This is what I experienced. And I know that's probably not what you meant. However, you need to know that that's what happened, and I would like to move past that. So if you, you know, and then me might say, well, this is what I was feeling. Great. Thanks for sharing me in the future. Here's might be another way for us to handle it. When I give that advice to people at work, they go, ah, Karen, she'll never get it. They're already judging or making yeah. an assumption about Well, it makes something. you think that. Oh, I've, I've seen Karen. She does this to everybody. Well, of course she does it to everybody because that's her personality. Okay, that's your style. But you don't necessarily know, recognize, or understand the impact your style has on people. Mm. Now, it's possible that you don't care, but I'd rather have you tell me that you don't care, because then I know, back to knowing, than say, I believe you don't care and make that my truth, because that's not fair to you. And also, too, if we're in a relationship at work, because, you know, we do have relationships where we say, oh, relationship, that's such a heavy word. Now, we're all in relationship with everybody all the time. Okay, there's intense, intimate relationships and there's casual business relationships. But I got news for you. You're in a relationship with the people you work with. And if I'm in a relationship with you, I have an obligation, a responsibility to help you accomplish what you want to accomplish as a professional on the team that I'm on. So if you're doing something that's disruptive to the things that you want to accomplish and nobody tells you, Hmm. that's not right. It's not fair. You have a, a, we have a responsibility to share that so that you can decide how you want to respond to it. And you may tell me I'm full of crap and then I go, okay, love you anyway. And you need to know, but, 
And then you say, well, yeah, I get it, but that's me and I don't care. Well, that's fine. But now at least we've had this exchange and I can say, yep, you know, unfortunately, Karen doesn't care, but maybe I'll revisit it anyway because I still love her. Mm-hmm. And then, but if, uh, some, a lot of times people say, oh, I really didn't know that. And then they go into defend mode. You work past the defense because, well, I didn't really mean that. I understand. But my truth is uh, this is my experience. So we're not going to diminish it. And we're not going to make excuses for it. We do need to understand that this is exactly what I experienced because it's my truth. And you mm-hmm. need to find ways to accept my truth just like I'm willing to accept your truths. Which I can see why it's important within a team and a, a company that everybody has this listening training <laughs> so that we can be not only the on the receiving end but also the giving end because it is this exchange. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about company culture and how important listening is to that because otherwise it's the coffee cooler talk mm-hmm. or the email that gets sent in between, you know, and trying to manage gossip and personalities and all of that. Sometimes uh, I I think that we forget to be compassionate and respectful with mm-hmm. each other and we just go off of how we're feeling that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. And, and in conjunction with the story we're telling about them. Yes, and and being unwilling to to have a different a new story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other and the other challenge we you know we had this conversation earlier today on a on a different interview, but we forget that we're all humans. If you're if you're my boss, Karen, and I have an experience with you in in an exchange, a lot of people go, yeah, but she's my boss. I can't tell her. I'm thinking like, yeah, she's your boss, but she's also a fellow human being. And if she's doing her best to try to try to get you to succeed or get some things done, it, you have that responsibility to share with her your experiences. You're not being disrespectful. You're not being confrontational. You're saying, I, you need to know. Mm-hmm. It's something I believe you need to know. And that making a commitment to that person that you're supporting their well-being and their growth and their success. It's not I'm here to criticize you and tell you that I hate the way you, because that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying when you do this, this affects me this way. And I would rather that we didn't have this experience because I'm committed to us working together. I'm committed to us being a successful. We share common values. And I think that that's that's where we get hung up with this whole thing right now is, is that when one of the people that I interviewed, they talked about um, SOS. It was um, separating, othering, and siloing. Mm. Very powerful. But what happens is we see somebody that we disagree with or we don't like is maybe the way the way their hair, maybe the color of their skin, uh, you know, the clothes that they wear, the way they speak, um, how they work. I don't really care, but we we separate them. They're not me. They're not like me. They don't, they don't work like me. They don't think like me. They don't talk like me. They don't have the same values. So I separate them. They're not my people. And we leave them over here as though it's okay. And then the next thing we do is we other them because we have I have my tribe and then I have the other people. So my tribe is like, oh, you're in the back to the water cooler stuff. Yeah, this is the A team and that's the B team. These are the insiders. These are that's the cool kids. These are uncool kids. Mm-hmm. So we other them, which means it lowers our responsibility to be in relationship with them. And then if you know, it goes to the next level is we silo them. Because now we put them in a really nice terabyte and we just basically, now I don't have to deal with them because I put them over here in this funnel. And so the, the trick is to recognize that everybody that shows up, people that are in front of me are in front of me for a reason. And it's my responsibility to embrace the reason. They're there for a reason. I don't, don't always know why, but they're there. And they're there for a reason. And if I, even if I don't know the reason, that means I have an opportunity. Them. I'm called to get to know them. Mm-hmm. Just that simple. Hmm. Thinking of uh, a young gentleman that I was 
called the mentor several years ago. And I'd always wanted to be a mentor, like an official mentor role. And here I am. And it was a challenge for me in a lot of different ways. And I kept thinking, for me, this is not what I asked for. I don't, I don't know what I had in mind, but I, I, I separated myself. I othered him. I siloed. And, and then I realized for so long, it really was a prayer. And, and a, you know, put the people in front of me that I can be of service to. Mm -hmm. And here I am getting picky. <laughs> and I completely changed the way I showed up in, in working with this young man because I thought, well, who— I need to find out what it, why is it that we landed here together? Mm -hmm. And he's become one of my dearest friends all these years later. And um, had I continued to, you know, feel superior or somehow slighted that this is, you know, who was sent to me to, to keep, keep an eye on and help guide, what, what, it would have been an awful experience. Mm -hmm. And it was for a while, not for him so much, but for me because I was torturing myself. Well, part of the challenge with that is, is as a mentor, we want to, you know, mentor, well, I get to mentor somebody. So I am get to tell them yeah. how brilliant I am. And feel so great about myself when, when you've achieved whatever it is I have on my agenda for you to achieve. Right. Baloney. <laughs> in its strictest sense, you were selfishly engaged. For sure. Very selfishly engaged until the light bulb went off and right. I went, and you, oh. And then you went to selfless. Yep. So it's about them. Mm -hmm. Why are they here? What do they need? How can I help them? Yes. And it's that simple. Yeah. Even though it sounds simple, it's not, e it's not <laughs> it's easy. It's not easy. And yet it is It is simple. And with practice and that becoming part of just who we are, it becomes evident. Like you d kind of described your friends would say, oh, that's just Dave. That's how he, that's how he shows up. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, – Brene Brown in Braving the Wilderness, Adam Grant in Think Again, and then Monica Guzman is the one who um, talked about, asked, you know, the siloing one. Yeah. Um, she wrote a book called um, um, I Never Thought of It That Way. That's the name of it. Yeah. Mm. And each one of those books, actually, you know, if I were to tell if I were to have a college course, I would make those be the three required readings because yeah. each book, you know, uh, Brene introduces the concept, Adam takes it to a different level, and then Monica applies it to her personal life because she's a her parents are Mexican immigrants who are Trump supporters, and she's, in a way, on the other side of the spectrum. So every conversation was intense, disagreement. But she loves her parents, and they have great values, and they have a lot of commonalities. So she was like, how do I navigate this tension of a clear disconnect between what we believe and that kind of stuff? But it doesn't mean that our values are off. It's just that we have this area of disagreement. Mm -hmm. But the idea being those three things is that each one of those books has one word that is overemphasized um, compared to all the other ones. It's curiosity. Curiosity is the key to this because if I draw a conclusion that I know, remember we talked about this earlier, if I draw a conclusion that I know, or I draw a conclusion that this is what I believe, or I draw a conclusion this is how it's going to be, I'm not allowing myself to explore the possibilities that what my assumptions or my story or my truth or my beliefs might be corrected adjusted or changed. So be curious. You shed them all. That's the selfish piece. You shed all that stuff and say, okay, I'm a blank sheet of paper. Tell me what I need to know. Mm. And I share this with my clients in Detroit. I said, as a sales guy, I'm comfortable going to a sales call being the dumbest guy in the room. You know, most salespeople, I should know. So okay, be, be the guy who knows. I don't care. I know I know. But that's not what the point is because I might not be right. I know what I know. It's what I don't know. That's going to get me in trouble, and I don't know what I don't know. Is that so, the same as being willing to be wrong? Yes. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's the premise of Adam Grant's book is, you know, think again. 
is that we have a set of core beliefs, values, and stuff like that. We embrace them. We internalize them. I, and I've got them, okay? I'm, I'm just as strong and pig-headed as the next guy, easily. Mm-hmm. But there's a point where it's like, okay, what don't I know or what do I – what would interrupt what I believe to be true? Well, I don't know until I explore it. Otherwise, I can sit around and say, yep, I'm 66 years old. I've been doing business for 40 years. I've raised three kids. I've done the whole drug addiction thing. I'm an expert. And nobody's going to tell me anything different than what I already believe to be true. You're right. I can't unless I allow myself to say, hmm, I wonder if there's something different out there. That's curiosity. So willing to, willingness to be curious is very powerful. But most people, me, is, is a, being curious is like releasing control. It's letting go of the fear, doubt, and worry that I might be wrong, the fear, doubt, and worry that I might have to change my thinking, the fear, doubt, and worry that, you know, I've been wrong all along, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever listened to Adam. It's not Adam Stanley. Andy Stanley, a minister of Northwood Church. He's got a podcast called Think Again. It's a brilliant podcast. Basically, it's his sermons from his from his time in the church, but— mm-hmm. He says, he said to the audience, and there's a thousand people in this church. I've been to his church a couple of times. It's just amazing. But he says, you know, there's a hundred percent chance that you guys, every one of you in this room is wrong about something. And he says, you know how I know? (laughs) (laughs) And this is beautiful. He said, everyone here can tell a story about something that they believed to be true when they were younger and they've changed their mind about it. So chances are a hundred percent you're wrong about something right now. You just don't know what it is. Isn't that interesting? Powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, and three uh, scenarios flashed through my mind just now when you said that from my childhood where I'm like, oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. I always said I was never going to be in business. And here's all the reasons why not. And here I am, you know. Owning your own business. Yeah. (laughs) Go figure. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a book? I feel like I I already should know that answer. I do have a book. Um, I have a couple books. Um. I should say one now because the other one I took out of print because I didn't like the narrative. But I wrote a book about my journey with my son's addiction. It's called The Addicted Child. And I think it's still for sale somewhere. I don't promote it. Kind of like you and your radio shows. I probably have like 600 blogs out there that I wrote with with 100 puddles. And what I did was I curated them all and updated them and wrote a book that you know, basically captures the key components of like selfless listening and sitting with your kid and Mm. those kind of things. Um, Gosh, it's been out there like five or six years. Yeah. I wrote several books. I wrote a book called Cooked Up Sales. I wrote a book called um, Behind the Dumpster, which is where my son's addiction journey started. We found him living behind a dumpster in a strip mall about half a mile from where he grew up as a kid. Mm. And then I wrote the book The Addicted Child, which was replacing the Behind the Dumpster because – the narrative of Behind the Dumpster was very confrontational. I was telling my son's story and the impact of all his behaviors on me. Um, Most people didn't see it that way, but I felt like I was demonizing my son, and I didn't want to tell that story. It's interesting you say that because uh, one of the things that we talked about on your show was my experience with my ex-husband and his addiction and eventual attempt at uh, suicide. And it's only been three years since We've been in relationship, and since that all kind of happened, came to a head. I know you know this because I think this is how we found each other, was that you started listening or paying attention to my blogging, which is on Facebook at the time, 
And people have said, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. I don't want to be that story. Mm -hmm. And that story was as much Mike's as it was mine, even though it was through my lens. And I did everything I can, I'm sure you did too, to be protective and, and caring and respectful and compassionate of Mike. And I was still in the thick of chaos and trauma. And so uh, it's interesting that you say that. The narrative for me has changed. And, mm -hmm. and I continue to stay open to and curious what's next for me, even though sometimes I get so frustrated mm -hmm. that nothing's coming in super clear yet. Well, that's because, you know, you're, you're a performance-based person. You, you're, we're dialed into results. Mm -hmm. We're dialed, you know, when I first talked to you on the phone way back in like October, November, I got driver out of you. I got it. Driver, driver, driver. And it's so hard as a driver because we want to see the path. Mm -hmm. Am I making progress? You know, and our definition of progress is, you know, they say you're going to lose two and a half pounds a week. Is that that's bullshit. I'm going to lose four <laughs> pounds a week because I'm Dave Cook. <laughs> right. And then it doesn't happen. So that that just doesn't make sense. You know, I should be moving faster. I should be having more clarity. I should be having more results. And that's that's the challenge that we have as opposed to really just trusting the journey. And, and a big conversation that we have with parents all the time is, they talk about behaviors and outcomes. You know, what do I do when? How do I respond to and stuff like mm -hmm. that? And it doesn't always go the way they want it to go. And I said, this is a progression. Okay, this is progress. Did you try it? Yes. Okay, how did it go? Not as good as I wanted. What could you have done differently or better? Mm -hmm. Instead of abandoning it altogether. Yeah, or saying it didn't work. Okay, that's a declaration. Mm -hmm. And from it didn't work, great. Do we want to move from there or we just want to sit and say, okay, it's not going to work? Well, no, it's got to, we got to figure it out. Good. Then let's look at it. That conversation is progress because now I'm going to do something different again next time. The problem is, is that like with moms and dads with addiction, their measure of success was, did my son run to the treatment center? Right. That's not progress. That's, that's the, okay, that's your goal. Staying I get. attached to an outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm, if I'm doing it for that, what I'm doing is I'm basically surrendering, surrendering my life to my child until they do what I want them to do. Right, which you, you personally were there. Yeah, that doesn't work. No. And you can sit here and spend the rest of your life in hold until my son finds recovery, or I can find ways to love my son in his mess and live my life, hoping he does because of the fact that he's experiencing my love and my commitment and my support without the backside of it, which is my judgment, my criticism, my disappointment, and all that other crap, because that stuff is a negative, is negative energy, and it will my son will experience that. Mm -hmm. So I, he needs to experience me in my love for him because that's my commitment. I remember a story when we were on your show. You talked about the shift for you was when he came home and he was blitzed out of his mind and you would welcome him in. Mm -hmm. Can you share that? Because I remember that <laughs> being really significant for me. Yeah, it was Saturday mornings. You know, Sometimes we wouldn't see him for a week or two. You know, usually it was just a week, but Saturday mornings, nine o'clock in the morning. And if, you know, if you know, you know, the time zone change in Arizona, nine o'clock is noon. So that's kickoff time for footballs on the East Coast. And every Saturday morning, my son would show up with his Michigan shirt on. Yeah, I know people, I raised my son to be Michigan fans, but he'd show up with his Michigan shirt on. And, you know, I'd be so happy to see him, but he was, you know, he stunk. And sometimes he was a little foggy and hazy. So he was obviously high. And I would welcome him in. And I would do And we'd sit and we'd watch the football game and et cetera, et cetera. And then he, after the game was over, he'd leave. I'd say, you want something? No, I'm good. You want a shower? No, I'm good. And he would leave. Let him be. And it was really weird. But then um, after a little while, I'm starting to think, you know, like my wife even said to me, she goes, what's he coming over for? You kidding? He came over to watch football with his, with his parents because that's what we did. So what in the midst of his mess, in the midst of his chaos, 
he would always say, you know, no, back to the thing, he knew he needed to find recovery, but he didn't know how or didn't have the belief or the structure for him to do it. But in the middle of it, he created a path that says, you know, at least I can connect with my parents. At least I can have something. And my son tells the story of this to this day. He says, says, I really never had it that bad living on the street, which I don't know how anybody can say that, but he said it. My truth is, is if I spent one night on the street, it would be my last night. I would figure it out. But, but he said it got to the point where I missed my parents. And he said, I want more of that. And that's what migrated him towards his recovery. So it's back to the power of love. I could have closed the door on him. Because a lot of people would say that, you know, you need to practice tough love. We can have a whole show on that. We're not going to do that here. But Dave does not believe in tough love. And if you want to talk about it, call me up later. But I don't close the door on him because he's there. He's present to me. He needs his dad for something. I don't know what it is. And I'm going to sit with him. And that goes back to the beating them where they're for who they're. Give them what you can give them, not give them what you can give them on conditions. Because love is love. You just give it to them. Sometimes you give until it hurts, but you still give it to them. So good to be with you in, in my home this time. How can folks stay in touch with you? And what is the easiest way if someone's listening and they're like, gosh, I really want to have our team spend some time with Dave. Is it just a phone call or a conversation to get that started? I would say the easiest way is just to call me on the phone. I mean, I can give you my my email as well, but it's, you know, my, my uh, do you want me to give you my well, phone you, number? You can, yeah. It's 586, mm-hmm. which is a great Michigan exchange, people. 586-201-9057. Mm-hmm. And then if you wanted to email me, it's Dave at the Cook Group LLC. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, Cook has got an E on the end of it. So it's the Cook, C-O-O-K-E, Group LLC dot com. I like the high note on the E. Yeah. <laughs> helps well, us help us, us remember. Well. I love it. Uh, and then the website, thecookgroupllc.com. Correct. And I know you're on LinkedIn. You're on Twitter too. Are yeah. you active? No. <laughs> I, I never could wrap my brain or my my fingers on on Twitter. Could never could do that. And I don't. Did I know that you're on Instagram too? Are you active on Instagram? Yeah. If you wanted to find me on other social media sites like Instagram or Facebook or whatever, I'm actually the David Cook. Yes. With an E on the end. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't do that this time. With an E? With an E. e. <laughs> there we go. Very proper. So great to hear more about your business and you as an individual. I really enjoy spending time with you, and I'm grateful that you would be willing to come and share your story on Business Radio X today. Thanks, Karen. This was a blast. I'm glad. And we were longer than a half hour because we we can do that here. <laughs> Very good. Uh, you've been listening to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Work Center. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean business. Until next time, I'm Karen Nowicki. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.